If you'd like, you can go ahead and make your way over to Matthew chapter 1 here in just a couple of minutes. We're going to be picking up in this section. We'll spend a few minutes here this evening. <clears throat> As you're doing that, let me test your knowledge here. Three names, Gaspar, Melkor, and Balthazar. Can you place them? Where in the Bible? You're thinking now Judges, maybe somewhere around Ibzan, Elon, somewhere in there, maybe just after Jehu and the Kings. Well, if you're uh, wanting a fun-filled vacation and want to visit Cologne, Germany, you can see their skulls uh, in the cathedral uh, there in Cologne. These are purportedly the three wise men who came to visit Jesus. There's only a couple of problems. One is we don't know how many there were. And secondly, their names are never given. But that's not the only thing that we have that's kind of deceptive about it. You'll uh, note that around December or so, when people began putting up their nativity scenes and you've got the manger and you've got the angel and Mary and Joseph, you've always got the three wise men standing over there on the side. Problem is, they weren't there either. So there's not a lot of accurate information out there about them. But yet what we find is that they're going to hold a very important part of the birth narrative of Jesus, but maybe not in the way that we oftentimes think of it. We're going to be looking at what Matthew has to tell us about these wise men. Because what Matthew is going to do, unlike Luke... Luke is going to spend a great deal of time telling us about the birth of John and the, the appearance to Mary and all of these things that are very narrative style put in his gospel. Matthew is going to be really short and sweet on the birth of Jesus. But he's going to slow down a bit when he gets to the wise men. And that's going to be because he's painting a contrast for us. He's going to give us a very stark contrast between these wise men who have journeyed to find the newborn Savior versus a king who is going to very callously offer worship, as we'll see, but yes, has much more diabolical plans in mind. So let's take a look at what we've got going on here as we look at these wise men and this foolish king. And I want us to begin, first of all, by talking about how all of this fits in. As we think about Matthew's gospel, we're going to find here that Matthew is going to place a very heavy emphasis on fulfilled prophecy. You know this. As you study through the book of Matthew, Matthew is constantly stopping to say, now, here's what the prophets had to say about it. And when this took place, this is fulfilling what a prophet said about these things. And that's, that's ironic, because Matthew is writing a gospel that will in many ways answer Jewish questions. But if you'll recall, Matthew's pretty hated by the Jews. Yet, God's going to use him in this purpose to give us all of this information about how the Hebrew Bible is linking up with what's taking place here. Now, Matthew's going to give us a few clues about what he plans to do. And one of those is the way that he's setting up his gospel. And so if you look on this very first page of Matthew, the very first page of our New Testament, you find that it begins with a genealogy. Now, what's the best way to write a not bestseller? 
It's to start with the genealogy. Because in our Western minds, we look at this and we say, wow, that's a bunch of names that I can't pronounce. Let's get to the good stuff. But yet, if you're reading this in the context of the Hebrew Bible, what we call our Old Testament, then you're going to find that those genealogies are extremely important. And so if you're Jewish, you're looking at this and you're thinking, okay, Matthew's cluing me in on something. And really what he's doing is he's linking his gospel up in a lot of ways with the book of Genesis. Because when you're reading through Genesis, the writer of that book has divided it into sections. And he'll begin by saying, these are the generations of the heaven and earth. And then he's going to say, these are the generations of Terah. These are the generations of Ishmael and of Isaac and of Jacob. And what he's going to do as he introduces each of these sections is he's going to give a genealogy to show how all these people are in the family. And so as Matthew begins his gospel, if you're reading this like you had been reading the book of Genesis, you're thinking, okay, Matthew's continuing this storyline that we began very close to page one of our Bibles. He's just carrying that right on through. So if you want to, if you're a visual thinker, just kind of think of it like this, that here's Matthew with his plug and he's putting it in the socket of the Old Testament. And what that's going to do then across his gospel is to start lighting things up that are showing how all of this is a continuing narrative of what we started way back when in the book of Genesis. And so we've got then the Jews recognizing this. We Gentiles need to recognize that too as we're getting an appreciation for what's going on here. And then we're going to come to the wise men. So if you look in the gospel here, and we're going to back up and, and talk a little more at length at some of these. I want to do a couple of, of overview points before we get to it. Matthew very quickly goes through the, the birth of Jesus with Mary and Joseph and all that went on with that and Joseph about to put her away till he gets a message from heaven. Matthew tells us all of that. And then we come down to where the wise men are coming for their visit sometime later. And what we find as it's described here is that the wise men, this is verse 1 of chapter 2, are coming from the east. And they're coming from the east. And I would suggest to you that that's a very significant designation. It's not because we need to pinpoint this geographically. A lot of times if you read commentaries on this, you'll have a wide array. It's like, well, these are Babylonian magicians who are coming. Or these are people who are coming from the old lands of Assyria or something like that. That's, I don't think that's Matthew's point here. Again, if we think about Matthew's gospel being plugged into that Old Testament socket, then we're looking for connections that are taking place. Well, if we go back to the book of Genesis, we're going to find those. Because we're finding in the book of Genesis is that when things are going wrong, people are going east. You remember that? So when Adam and Eve mess up, it says they go east. And when Cain messes up, it says he goes east. We get to the Tower of Babel and we think maybe we found a good group of folks here. They're coming from the east, but then they stop and they start doing things like themselves. And so here are these wise men, and Matthew just simply says they're coming from the east to visit Jesus, to see this newly born king. 
And so what they're doing is, very symbolically speaking, they're coming from that area where people have gone away from God. And so there's this return now. And I would suggest there's a second connection. Because we know that Abraham is going to journey from the east to the land that God's going to show him. And so these wise men, in a sense, are kind of retracing Abraham's step as they're now seeking this promise that God has made to them. So here they are, they're coming from the east. Then what we find is that they're also going to begin fulfilling prophecy. One of the things we know and very common knowledge, and that's what many times causes people to think there's three of them, is it says they brought the gold, frankincense, and myrrh with them as gifts, as, as somewhat of offerings for this new king. And so we key in on those two of the three, the gold and the frankincense. And again, as we begin looking at our Old Testament, we're going to find some connections here. Let me share just a couple of these with you. If you go to Psalm 72, verses 10 and 11, the psalmist writes, May the king of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. So here we've got this picture of people coming and they're bringing gifts and they're also bowing down. So let's keep that in mind. We'll be back to that here in just a little while. But then we go to the book of Isaiah. And in chapter 60 of the book of Isaiah, which many have, have nicknamed the fifth gospel because of how much it tells us in prophecy about the coming of Jesus. Here he writes, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise and shine on you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light. Listen for Genesis 1 in that. The nations are coming to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar. And your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. And what are they doing when they come? Isaiah says they're bringing gold and frankincense. And they shall bring good news. The praises of the Lord. So here's Matthew saying, I need to give you some clues about these guys. They're coming from a land that by direction was once associated with wickedness. They're coming with gifts in their hands to offer. They're coming to seek the light and to bow down to the Lord. And I think we're going to see all of that being fulfilled as we look at this in just a minute. So then, we've got the wise men on the one hand. But then we've got the king on the other. So here is Herod who is somewhat of a puppet of the Roman Empire. They put him in there, try to keep the Jews happy. Nobody's really happy. But Herod's connection to the Hebrew Bible is also emphasized, but in a very different way. Because when the wise men come, 
they pay a courtesy call on the king and tell him why they've come. And the king is very confused because he doesn't know what all this is about. So here's the king here in this land supposedly of the people of God. And yet he's got to consult the religious experts. So you can kind of imagine the scene here. You've got the king and he's calling in the, the scribes and the chief priest and they're all and he's saying, look, tell me what's going on with all of this. What's happening with these wise men coming? And so they, they're going to help out a little bit. If you look down to verse 6, they're going to quote from the prophet Micah here. They said, look, here's, here's what we read. You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they've, they've got the connection right. They at least understand that this is the prophecy that's under consideration. Yet what we find is that they don't really understand it either. So we've got this contrast here of the wise men coming from the east. We've got Herod and his little religious ilk here who have no concept of what may be occurring. Now, what I'd like for us to do is to note how Matthew is setting this up kind of side by side. How he's giving us this contrast between the wise men and this foolish king. So let's just look at the storyline of how it goes here. The wise men, with no real explanation as to why or how this is being done, why they were chosen anyway, but they're given a sign that this king has been born. And so they're looking into the sky, and here's this visible sign that's going to lead them to the, to the Lord, to this new king that's been born. Why God chose this, we don't know. But what we do know is it fits very much in with this thematic idea that spans the entirety of the Bible. Because as we've already read, beginning in Genesis 1, continuing in the prophets, on into the New Testament, we find that light is always associated with God. It's always associated with God. And so the very first quote of the Bible, God says, let there be light. And there was light. And as we progress on through the Bible, we find Jesus standing up and saying, I am the light of the world. That's kind of where it hits its culmination point. And we find later writers telling us to walk in the light. To be children of light. So here are these wise men that are given a visible sign of light that's going to lead them to God who has come in the flesh. Who's going to lead them to this one who's been prophesied about since Genesis chapter 3 who has now come and is ready to bring the kingdom of God. Now, we take that and we look at Herod in contrast. And we find that Herod is very much in the dark about this. And there's a lot of irony involved in this. Here is, and notice I've got this in quotations. Here we've got the king of the Jews who's living in what was called the city of God. You know, Jerusalem was supposed to be that place where God and man were meeting together, the temple is there. And yet all of that's really kind of a farce, isn't it? This one who is the king really has no business being king because he has no real interest in serving God. 
And he said in this city that has all of these religious people in it, but yet they're not terribly concerned to investigate and to see what all is happening here because everybody here is in the dark. So the wise men are led by the light. The king of the Jews, he's here and he's not recognizing it. And though the the religious ilk around him, they're getting the prophecy. They're understanding this is coming from the book of Micah, but they have no clue, no concept that all of this is coming about in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of this prophecy. That reminds us of something that John tells us. In John chapter 3, he says, and this is judgment, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. And as this story progresses, we're going to see that borne out, aren't we? We're going to see all these religious people who stayed so in the dark because they refused to accept the fact that this humble one, born in humble circumstances, could indeed be their king. Let's look at another contrast that Matthew makes for us. Not only do we see this in the sign of his birth, We also see this in the feelings that are expressed about his birth. So again, let's look at the wise men here. Go with me to chapter 2. Verse 10 is about my favorite verse of this entire account. But if we start in verse 9, it says, After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And they saw when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You talk about heaping on the words. Matthew does that. What he's saying is something like this, they were joyously joyful with mega joy. <laughs> That's how this would be translated. Matthew is saying they are so excited about this, they can't contain themselves because the star now has led them to this one where the Savior has been born. We think about their feelings. And yet we contrast that with Herod. Back up with me to verse 3. After the wise men pay their, their courtesy call to the king here, it says when Herod the king heard this, He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Here's the king who ought to be thinking, this is fantastic news if it's true. This is great if it's true. Instead, he's thinking, i got a rival. I've got somebody who's going to try to take me off the throne. And, And that word, if you can kind of think about it, it's kind of hard really to put into a word, but maybe you've experienced a time where you know something might be on the horizon, and if it really is, it's going to be bad for you. And and you're just kind of in this constant state of agitation about it. Well, I think that's King Herod. He's worried about losing his position. He's worried about losing his place as king. And unfortunately, he's going to do some terrible things as a result of all of that. So joyful wise men, a troubled king. But let's look at a third that we find here we also find that there's going to be a very different reaction to the birth of Jesus. 
stretch. And this is sometime after the point. We don't know exactly how long. But it's not the night he's born for sure. Months or maybe even a year or two's passed by this point. And so as the wise men come, if you look at verse 11, it says they fell down. Remember what we read in the book of Psalms? That they're going to fall down and worship? Here we've got the wise men who fall down before this child and they worship. And they present their gifts as sacrifices to this new king. Isn't it interesting that these are the first humans who are specifically said to have worshipped Jesus? Now, of course, if we think about Jesus in His eternal sense, as God eternal, we know that He's been accepting worship since the creation. But the specific idea of worshiping the newborn king, it's these wise men who are doing that. And so what we're seeing now is somewhat of a closing of the loop with Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, the writer is saying, let me tell you how the nations came about. They tried to build this big tower in this city and they were going to rival God. So God showed them. He divided their languages. They divided up. And here's all the nations that they became. And it's kind of like from that point on, you've got these nations wandering in the wilderness. And every once in a while, you'll find a prophet that's going to say, yeah, the nations are going to come back one of these days. And now what do we find? We find these men from the east, from the nations, who are now making their way to the newborn Lord and the King who will offer them salvation. And yet we contrast that beautiful picture that we see there with Herod. Herod tells the wise men, Now, as soon as you find him, you come back and tell me. Remember what he says? Because I also want to worship him. I want you to tell me where he is because I also want to worship him. God interjects, tells wise men, don't do it. You go home a different way. Don't go back to Herod. But then what does Herod seek to do? Herod's going to take on the garments of the beast. Herod's going to take on the serpent king form. And what we begin to do now in the book of Matthew is to transition from Genesis to Exodus. And we think back about how Pharaoh was trying to kill all these baby boys. Herod takes a play out of his snaky book and he says, you know, I think I'm going to do that too. I'll stop this king. Stop this threat to my empire. And so we begin to see that, but somewhat in the inverse of the book of Exodus, we've got a reverse Exodus where Joseph and Mary take their baby and they go to Egypt for protection. And yet we're going to find that God calls them out of Egypt, calls His Son Egypt to go back into this land and to be a Savior. You look at the reactions to the birth of Jesus, to these feelings about His birth, to the idea of what are we going to do? Are we going to worship or are we going to try to kill Him? Are we going to accept Him or are we going to try to eliminate Him? And so what that then does is it brings us to see that there was a big choice that was made. And think about the wise men 
they give us a very good picture of the choice that we need to make. I've entitled this series, It's All About the Choices. And it's not because we're going to focus down every night, we're going to examine the word choice and all, it's not going to do that. But all of our lessons are going to show where people are confronted with the Lord and what they're going to do with it. And so we find here that when the wise men are confronted, they've got the same decisions to make that we've got to make. And so for the last few minutes of our lesson this evening, I want to talk to you a little bit about that. That as we think about coming on as they did, of thinking about the choice that they made and our choice, I'd just simply like to present you with a question. How does the name Jesus impact you? Never thought about that? How does the name Jesus impact you? While you're contemplating that, look over to the book of 2 Thessalonians. Book of 2 Thessalonians. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, just a couple of verses here in a minute. Many of us in the room have been followers of Jesus for a long time. But it's still a question we've got to ask. That when I hear the name of Jesus, when I think about the name of Jesus, what does that mean to me? Well, listen to what the Apostle Paul says here. As we look here in chapter uh, 2 of the book of 1 Thessalonians, I want you to go down with me to verses 16 and uh, 17 here. And as we look at this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, looking down to verses 16 and 17, he writes, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Does that describe you? As Paul here is is bringing this message to a group of Christians, and he's saying, now when you think about the name of Jesus Christ, and you think about what He's done, what that should create in you is this overwhelming hope that can hardly be put into words. That's where we need to be. And when we think about Jesus, we need to have joyous joy exceedingly. Do we have problems with that? You know, I've thought over the years about the church at Ephesus. When God, Lord, is speaking to them, Jesus is speaking to them, He says, you know what? You have been a solid group. When there were those who came into your midst who were purporting all kinds of false doctrine, you stood up firm to them. You didn't give them an inch. You tested them. You made sure they were genuine. Then he says, but i got a problem in the fact that you're not loving like you did at the beginning. There's been a lot of debate on what the Lord meant by that phrase. But I'm always of the mind, the simple answer is usually the best. That the way that they once loved the Lord was not the way that they loved Him now. 
And it wasn't that they had abandoned him. It wasn't that they had left him. It was a simple fact that what they had done is forgot to rejoice in who he is. You think we've got that trouble sometimes? I think if we're not careful, we can fit into that kind of Ephesus mindset where we say, we are a strong church because we can preach against false doctrine and we take a firm stand on things and our sermons are solid and they're dealing with that. And please don't get me wrong here, that is so necessary. There's always that effort to come in and to pollute and and to have things go awry. Yet... We can never become so concerned about doing it right that we forget why we need to do it right. Several months ago, somebody had given me just a ton of periodicals. These dated back, some of them, to the late 1800s. And as I was going through them, I was looking at just kind of the front cover of all of them. And I would say, three quarters are better was about a false doctrine. And as I was doing that, I wondered, where's the teaching on how to be a solid Christian? Where's the teaching on how to love the Lord? Where's the teaching on how to stick with God whenever things go awry in your life? Do we need the teaching on false doctrine? Absolutely, yes. You understand not diminishing that. But what I am saying is, if we're going to have the joy that these men had, we've got to understand who's come into the world. And that's our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that hope that He gives us is going to be bolstered by the fact that we can trust Him. I remember, it's kind of uh, one of those kind of flashbulb memories, if you know what a flashbulb is. It's one of those that's just kind of stuck in your mind that happened in this auditorium many, many years ago. I had, I don't know if I'd taught an auditorium class or if it had been a sermon or what, but I remember using, I don't remember the point, but I remember the illustration that dealt with the Reader's Digest sweepstakes. If you don't know what that is, ask somebody over 40 and they'll, they'll cue you in on that. And I made the point, said, I really hope I win the Reader's Digest sweepstakes, but you know, I never fill out the form. And a man who was a member here at the time came to me and he said, I don't think you're hoping, I think you're wishing. It was a moment of clarity. <laughs> I think back to that, and it was, it, it was like I had this, my eyes opened of seeing what hope really is all about. That simple exchange. What he was telling me was, hope's got to be based on something. It's got to to have some solid ground to it. And sometimes I'm afraid that when we think about our relationship with the Lord, it's not so much the hope, it's the wishing that we're dealing with. But that's not how it needs to be. Trusting is believing that everything we're doing is for a reality. It's for a reality. That there really is going to be eternity. That there really is going to be a day of judgment. That there really is going to be a time when God says to the faithful, come with me, and to those who are against Him, go away from me. And we can never, ever, ever 
allow ourselves to kind of get in this religious, this religious mindset where we say, I'm going to do the right thing because maybe, maybe there's an eternity and I want to cover my bases here and in case there is, no, that's wishing. What these wise men show us is that they were willing to travel because they knew there was something behind all of this. That all of these prophecies were true. That a Savior had indeed been born who would save the world. I think about when the psalmist wrote, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. He's saying what we're saying right now. That if I'm going to have a solid, hopeful salvation, then I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe He's real. I believe He's still real. I believe that He is in heaven, that He's interceding for us, that He has a keen interest in my salvation, and He wants to save me when He returns. And when I can have that kind of hopeful trust, I can then have that exceeding mega joy. Look with me over to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. And I want you to notice just a single verse here that we see the Apostle Paul writing. He's been describing pretty significant detail, the hope. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you've got this hope. And he's been dealing with that for the Gentiles in particular. And we come down to verse 13 and he's kind of wrapping this section up. He says, may the, Lord, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That is a full acceptance of what it means to believe all this is real. Here the Apostle is saying, here's what you need to be thinking about when you're standing at that water of baptism. You're standing there and you realize, I am a sinner. <laughs> I've been exiled to the east. I've gone away from God. But by His grace, He's given me the opportunity to come back. And when I go down in that waters, those waters of baptism, as the Apostle wrote to Titus, he says, you are renewed and you are regenerated in the Spirit. And you come out with your sins taken away and you've been given life. That's joy. At least if we believe all this is real. I can't tell you exactly how the Spirit operates. But I can tell you this, God makes a big deal out of it. And God makes statements about the Spirit who dwells in you. Your temples of the Lord with the Spirit in you. And statements such as this that He makes in Romans uh, chapter 15, verse 13, where he says the power of the Holy Spirit is abounding in you to hope. And what God is saying is, I have made you alive. You are dead and I brought you back. You found your way to me by my grace and now you're saved. And that should make us joyful beyond measure. And like these wise men, it should cause us to fall down and worship. 
You ever heard somebody come out of Sunday morning and say, you know, I just didn't get a thing out of the service this morning. Is that sad? To come into the presence of God, your Savior, your King, and you've got this opportunity to praise Him and to talk to Him and to hear Him. And, and you say, oh, I didn't really get anything out of that. Well, that might reflect a time for some decisions in your own life. Let's talk about the positive side of that. When we are to a point where we are so excited that there's an opportunity to serve the Lord, to worship Him, to acknowledge Him, we're going to be like these wise men. You see, it's all about the choice. And they made the right one. But then we have to realize there was one who didn't. There was one who refused to come from the east. There was one who instead of finding this, this trust in God, he finds it troubling. And like the king of Egypt, he's trying to, to stamp it out. He doesn't want it to happen. And he ultimately rejects the Lord by seeking to kill Him. And that leads to his destruction. That's our choice. It was a choice for the wise men and Herod. It's a choice for us. But the question always is, what's it going to be? It's going to be one or the other. And every one of us is being called on to make it. And let me just say, God's made it easy if we'll let it. Let it be easy. God said, I could have done all kinds of things. I, I, I could have put you to work. I could have punished you eternally. But instead, I gave my Son so that you could have the hope of eternity with me. And when we think about that, and when we think about what our Savior went through to culminate this plan so that we could come to Him, we should fall down and worship. And if we have not come in from the east, it's time. It's time. It's not going to be a star that appears over your house tonight to lead you to the Lord. That's happened already. Their star is our star. That light is our light. And God has said that at least for one more night, I'm going to give you the opportunity to make the choice. And so if you're not a Christian, I, I hope you'll really consider that. You know, sometimes it's a little scary thing to think about all these people looking at you as you make your way down the aisle and you make that confession. And as I often say at Gooch Lane, I'll say here, if that's the problem, we'll run everybody out of the room. And one night a young lady took me up on that. <laughs> so we, we cleared everybody to the lobby. And she became a child of God. Great moment. And it can be a great moment for you. That you have a Lord who wants you on His side. And so I hope tonight, whether it be while we sing the song, or whether it be immediately afterward, or whether it be at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, I can guarantee you somebody is going to be here to help you make that great decision. So I encourage you to give that lots of thought. We're going to stand and sing our final song at this time.